This morning I want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 44. Psalm 44. I'm just going to say as you do that Psalm 44 is the last lament psalm that we will see for a while. What that means is that it's the last psalm that is full of complaining and sadness that we will see for a while. So I just say that because I want you to know that's coming. And I want you to know that you should come back next week because it's going to be very different next week. But again, the reason that we look at these psalms one by one and we don't skip ones like Psalm 44 is because someday, if you haven't needed it already, you will need a, a, a psalm like chapter 44. I have this picture of the way that most of us go through life. And I, I, I may not be right, but I suspect that most of us just sort of bob along on the surface of the water like one of those rubber ducks at the fair. And we just go around in the circle and around in the circle until something outside of us happens. And when something outside happens to us, it can be completely disorienting. So I'm, I'm talking about the kind of thing this morning that is that sort of larger than life event. It really isn't you know, the kind of larger than life event that you would complain to God about, okay? I mean, I, we complain to God about all sorts of things. If you're like me, I get a hangnail and it's like, God, really, what did I do to deserve this? I was going along, things were fine. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those things that completely shatter your world. Earlier, Eric prayed about someone whose child was in an accident. That sort of thing. The kind of diagnosis you might get if you go to the doctor and they say it's cancer. The kind of thing where you discover, maybe from your spouse's phone, that they've been unfaithful. That sort of thing. The thing that just takes your breath away and completely disorients you. That's what Psalm 44 is about. And so I want to look at this psalm and I want you to see it because if you haven't been disoriented already there's a chance that one day you will be and you will need somewhere to go. And Psalm 44 is that kind of text. So let's look at Psalm 44. I'm going to read the whole thing to you because I want you to get the the big picture before we slow down and talk through it. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, O God, We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. 
but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my King, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have said, you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the face, or in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten your name, the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? For He knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, there are some hard things here. And it looks as though something has happened that has caused the writer to question God. Why? 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 Is a refrain at the end. Now, I, I just want to make sure you get the problem here. So that you, so you don't like try and solve or understand a different problem. The problem is, is not what it appears because it appears that the problem is with the circumstances. That they've gone out to battle and have lost and I'm discouraged because of my circumstances. That is not necessarily the problem. The problem is a problem with God. That's a bigger problem. It's one thing to have a problem with your circumstances. It's another thing to have a problem with God. And 
the writer here is trying to understand how God can be God and something this bad can happen. So, as you think about that, I want you to, I want you to think with me about what the nature of this problem. Have any of you ever argued with God? Have you questioned Him to say, God, you don't appear to know what you're doing here. And just make sure that I frame this properly. Okay, You have presented to you in the Scriptures that you have believed that you have given yourself to, you have given yourself to a God in the Scriptures who is in every respect perfect. He is perfect in power. There is nothing too hard for Him. Nothing that can frustrate Him. He is perfect in wisdom. He always knows what the right thing to do is. And He is able by His power to do it. He is perfect in His goodness. He is good altogether. And so there is nothing in Him that would cause Him to do bad or to do wrong. And He is perfect in every respect. Yet, I'm guessing that in your life, I know there has been in my life, things that I think He's gotten wrong. So if I'm not perfect, but He is perfect, if I'm not in charge, I'm just this little... Um, pawn here in the world, right? God is the sovereign King of the universe in charge of everything. And who am I to look up there and shake my fist at Him and say, you're wrong! What kind of appeal can I make? How do I go about disagreeing with a God like that? Is there any way that I can protest without being ridiculous and disobedient? That really, I think, is a question that this uh, psalm addresses. And I think it addresses it right in the outset. Okay? Here is the, the title to the choir master, A Maskil of the Sons of Korah. A masculine is the kind of poem that this is. It is a poem for instruction to teach wisdom, to teach understanding, to teach prudence. So that there is something here for us to gain in our understanding of the way the world works. Masculine of the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah, I mentioned last week, are descendants, well, Probably don't even need me to have mentioned it last week. They're the descendants of Korah. Conveniently, right? Turns out that this could be a masculine of Joe and Bob. The sons of Korah who wrote this, right? Some real people with some real names must have written this psalm. But they are identified 
as the sons of Korah. You recall from the book of Numbers that after the children of Israel left Egypt, they went out into the wilderness and they wandered around there for 40 years. And Dathan and Abiram and Korah did not like it. They were some who said, let's go back to Egypt. We remember how good it was when we were slaves. And they led a rebellion. So there, there is one option. See, there is an option to rebel against God, the God of the universe when you don't like how He runs the show. And we're reminded, even in the title, that that is one option. Because Korah led the rebellion. Now, this family, rather than just being you know, Joe and Bob who are hymn writers, they will ever be identified with the rebellion. Think about that. They cannot escape the fact that their ancestor led the rebellion. And here we have a psalm about God not doing this right. About God not running the world like I think He ought to run the world. And I could go the way of Korah. But I would suggest instead going the way of the sons of Korah. Now I mentioned that this has to do with an event that is disorienting. Here is the orientation at the beginning. Okay, We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, the deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. So you think this is just your problem. You think you're the one who went to Sunday school, right? And you heard about David and Goliath. And you heard about Moses and the Exodus. You heard about... uh, um, Samson, you heard about all these things where God really did something. You even remember Jesus, right? Who who died and rose again. How wonderful. Yeah, I've heard about all those things God used to do. And I know and I've been told that I should trust Him. See, this this is how, this is the orientation that the writer has. I remember those things. And I remember that it was God's own hand. It wasn't It wasn't their strength. It was God's hand that drove out the nations. And it was God who planted Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants in the land. It was God who brought the plagues, but it was God who set the children of Israel free. There's no no chance that they deserve this. It wasn't by their own sword. It wasn't by their arm. It was by the hand of God in the light of His face because of His delight in His people. So my orientation is that if I love and trust God, right? God will deliver me. If I love and trust God, God will delight in me. And when He does that, all the things that I hope for, all the circumstances in my life will go as planned. This is very personal for the writer of this psalm. You are my King, O God. 
ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we'll push this up. So it isn't just in the past. He's making a confession that this is what he believes. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. So he is putting his active faith in God. The God he learned about from his fathers. So that it's not my bow or sword that saves me. It isn't just bow or sword, okay? It's... um, you know, those two things stand as a representative in poetry for all of the army, for all of the horses and the chariots, for the spears, for the guns, for the bombs, for whatever it is that you think would be your defense. Those are not what we're trusting in. You have saved us. You alone are my hope, like you just have sung, right? In God, we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to Your name forever. Selah. So the Selah invites us to stop and reflect on the fact that we, in fact, do believe in a God who brings salvation. And what we heard about of God in the Exodus or God of David or the God of the resurrection, we believe that He still is God and we still can trust Him. And as you go through life, that is, that is what we believe. That is the way that we go through that. If we bob along the water, day in, day out, we believe that God is this kind of God. And that's all fine. It is a happy psalm up to verse 8. But, Still personal. You have rejected us. And disgraced us. And you have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back. So this is very interesting. He could have, he could have a very passive view of God. And say, well God, you allowed this to happen. Or he could have almost a... a um, a detached view of God where their army was just too strong. But he doesn't have either one of those. It isn't about their army and it isn't about God being sort of impersonal and uninvolved. It is like you. You can, you can just hear him. And you'll see it again in the next verses. You have rejected us. You have disgraced us. I mean, this is not somebody who is sitting, taking this sitting down. He is not just sitting in church saying, this is totally fine with me. You have made us turn back. And have given the spoils to our enemy. You have made us like sheep. You have sold your people. You see, this, this is the problem. The problem is not that the people got sold. The problem is that God did it. Talk about, are you disoriented yet? Starts off with this remembrance of God's wonderful deliverance. And then turns in an instant. That is not what I experienced. 
So I'm just going to stop here in the middle of this lament and say that this is going to be helpful. It's going to be helpful for you to run into this kind of thing because I think most of us think that we struck a bargain with God. And our bargain goes something like this. God, I believe in You. And I will try very hard to be good. And I think that if I'm good enough, that You will be good to me. And we'll have this little bargain. I'll be good, you be good, everything's good. And for the most part, because you live where you live at the time you live in, that's how it goes. We just sort of bob along and it's good. Until something disorienting happens, right? He continues. You've made us a taunt to our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made a, you have made us a byword among the nations and a laughing stock. All day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face. There are people who taunt me and revile me. There are enemies, those who take vengeance on me. So his problem is partly now, I mean, primarily with God, but he's feeling the pain of the circumstances of the people around. Disgrace and shame are all over. If other people knew what's going on here, this would be a problem. And you have here his lament that God has not gone out with our armies. I believe in Him and it isn't working out. And so the question is, how can you believe in God when it doesn't work out? That's the question. That's what makes this so um, disorienting and so absolutely um, nerve-wracking. Because ultimately, we get to the place, does God even love me anymore? See, that's that's the way we got into this, right? I imagine that somebody has suggested to you, suggested, okay, better than that, that John 3.16 is really important. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you. You should believe in His Son. I believe that. Yes, that's true. I want to believe in God who loves me. And then all of a sudden, the world turns around and I'm completely disoriented and it does not feel like God loves me anymore. Because you are the one, God, who has shamed and disgraced me. You are the one who didn't go out with our enemies. You are the one who caused me the problems. That's his lament. He remembers, first of all, how good it's supposed to be. Then he laments how it is. And then this is the unique thing about this psalm. What's next? All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. 
nor have our steps departed from Your way. I'm guessing you don't have a category for this. The psalmist didn't have a category for this. His categories were, when I sin, God disciplines me. When I repent, He lets off His discipline and I'm back to what's good and I'm bobbing along like normal. But what he's saying here is that I did not sin. Think about this. He's saying, I did not do anything that brought this on myself. If I'd forgotten God, I should expect to be treated this way. If I'd been false to God's covenant, I'd expect to be treated this way. If I'd turned back, this is how life should go. Or if I depart from His way, I expect trouble off the path. See why it's disorienting? Where does this fit? Then he says, let me get the right spot here. Yet, you have broken us. Still personal, right? In the place of jackals. And you have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, He should treat us badly. That's part of the covenant. The covenant that He's saying He didn't retreat from comes from Exodus where God made the covenant with them and they were to keep His commands. And they were not to make a covenant with a foreign country or their gods. And He said if we'd done that, this should happen to us. That's what the covenant says. That's what our agreement with God says. Yet, God has broken us. Or literally, crushed us. Some of you have felt crushed by God. Some of you are living under the shadow of death. And you're wondering, how can this happen when I haven't done what I think would cause this. He says, if we turn to decide to another God, wouldn't God discover this? He knows the secrets of the heart. Of course God would know. And then of course He would treat us this way. But it, we haven't. Now, this should remind you, I think of Job's protest, right? The whole entire book of Job is built around this very thing. That we, we think we have a contract with God that if we're good, then He'll be good. If we're good, then our circumstances will be good. And the whole book of Job suggests that Job was good and his, he lost all his family and all his possessions and his health. So how, how do you respond to that when this perfect, sovereign God appears to be doing this to you and you don't appear to deserve it. (sighs) 
Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, I, I want to disorient you just a little farther before I try and help you with any resolution. Because there isn't a ton of resolution here, is there? We're almost at the end and now we're being killed all day long. We're not just being killed once, we're being killed all day long. We're never done being killed. We're looking at the Psalms, right? If I was to say, what is your favorite Psalm? It wouldn't be this one, of course. Some of you would pick Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It is a problem. It's a problem when the Lord is my shepherd, yet I am regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. I am... How do I trust the Lord to be a good shepherd when in fact I am like a sheep to be slaughtered? More than that, you recall that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Right? I'm, I learned that in King James. Sorry about that. Thou art with me. And here He has covered... God Himself has covered us with this same shadow of death. He is our shepherd, yet we are sheep to be slaughtered. What are we going to do about that? This is... I hope you recognize this is a justifiable complaint. I hope you recognize this is a real problem. In, in what happens for a lot of Christians is that we have never thought about this. And we bob along and then when something like this happens, we cannot find our orientation again and we say, the God thing did not work for me. Well, I want to suggest to you that the ultimate resolution of this is it's in this psalm, yes, but only in, you might say, the shadow of it. Because this verse, we are killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is pulled, this is pulled into the New Testament in the book of Romans. Some of you may remember this from a few months ago when we were looking at Romans. And he asks the very question that's at stake here, right? The very question is, how am I going to believe God loves me when all these awful things are happening to me? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The New Testament writer, the writer of Romans, understands the problem. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. These things should not happen to me because I belong to God. Yet, I get them all. Seems to me like Christ doesn't love me anymore. And then he quotes Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
The issue is it feels like I'm being removed from the love of Christ. And then he says, okay, in direct contradiction to the psalmist who says, you didn't go out with our enemies. He says, no, in all these things, in the distress, in the persecution, in the sword, in the prison, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In your minds, you have attached by making this bargain, right? I'll be good, God. If you be good, you've attached good circumstances to the love of God. And he's saying, you can pull those apart here. Because you may have this catastrophe that disorients you. And you may have tribulation and persecution and famine and hunger and all these things. And you can still be more than a conqueror. Because God loves you. And then he says, For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your equation, my good works, equals God's good treatment of me is a false equation. There could be all sorts of things. Present, things in the past, things in the future that will one day cause you to question, does God love me? And He assures us here, in the New Testament, as He pulls out this suffering, as He, as he pulls us forward from Psalm 44 to say, it is the love of God manifest to you in Christ Jesus. It is that love that can never, never be separated from you. As you think about this, we have information they didn't have in Psalm 44. Okay? The sons of Korah, they wrote their song. They made their complaint. They made their protest. They didn't have what we have. We have, we have this. We're more than conquerors for Him who loved us, for I'm sure that death can't separate us. See, think about that. If anything should be able to separate you from the love of Christ, it should be death. I mean, it should take you all the way there and then you're done. But he says, death doesn't do it because of the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is exactly the same thing that Jesus Himself experienced. When He said, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why have You let this... this uh, group of soldiers arrest me? Why have you brought these false witnesses? Why did you let Pilate condemn me to be crucified? Why have you forsaken me? 
And it appeared as though Jesus was finished. That God had forsaken him altogether. That every complaint in Psalm 44 could have been the complaint of Jesus. That was on Friday. But come Sunday, when He rose from the dead, we can now confidently say nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even death. And so that is the protest. The resurrection trumps our protest. You cannot protest more powerfully than a resurrection. And then, he turns his protest into prayer at the end. Okay, He's not happier. He's not happier here. Awake. Here's God sleeping. Maybe you felt that too. Why are you sleeping? And Lord, rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction? So he's still there. But now, all of a sudden, he's addressing God in prayer. And he says, Our souls bow down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. We are as low as we can get. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Here is his fourfold petition at the end. Rise up. God, I, my soul, and it's okay for you to pray this way. My soul cannot bear feeling like you're sleeping when I'm talking to you. Okay? Preachers have this experience more than anybody else, probably. So rise up. Come to our help. Rather than abandoning us, God, now is when I need You. Redeem us. Okay, I think even His idea of redemption here points us ahead to a Redeemer who will do this not for... Notice this. It's not for our sake. Now He's changed. At first he said, we've not, we've been good, right? That was his complaint. We have not forsaken your covenant. We have not misbehaved. We have kept our end of the bargain. We've been good. That was his initial, there's a big change here. That was his initial understanding of the way this works. But now he says, not for my sake, not because I have been good, but God for the sake of Your steadfast love, help us and redeem us. I want to remind you. See, this is all the resolution we get in this psalm. Job gets more resolution. Jesus gets more resolution. Psalm 44 doesn't have any resolution, but it but it all comes down to one singular hope. Redeem us for the sake of Your covenant love. In the ESV, it's steadfast love. In other translations, it's loving kindness or Your 
I don't know what your version has there. There's one other way that it translates this. But um, he says, for the sake of your covenant love, which is God's... What he's doing is he's appealing to God's character and His faithfulness in the very last word of this psalm goes back to the person of God Himself. God, You are the One who is faithful to Your covenant, to Your promise. And that's all I have to hang on to. You might say, well, that's just, that's just a shred. That's just a, that's just a, a tiny little sliver of hope. Well, it's not. If it's the steadfast love of this God who is perfect in power, perfect in love, perfect in wisdom, and He has brought this calamity, and now the only thing I hope for is that same God will be faithful to His promise. You see, that's what this hope is. That He will redeem us for the sake of His steadfast love, His covenant love. And sure enough, that is what we find in the person of Jesus. Jesus, even when I was talking about Him being forsaken, in the, in the, in the final hours of His life, had a meal with His disciples and He said, this cup is the new covenant. This new covenant that Jesus said, this, my, this is the blood of the new covenant. My new promise. The one that doesn't depend on you. That doesn't say, if you keep My commandments, then I will be faithful. This new covenant says, I will be their God and they will be My people. And God's covenant love is faithful regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of how disorienting it is when those things go down. Because here you have the steadfast love or the covenant love of the Almighty Creator of the universe whose promises will not fail. And it's on Him and Him alone that we rely. And you see, that's even, even when we began, we said, you alone are our hope. But most of us, Most of us do go back and we say, you alone are my hope, but we live like you are my hope as long as these things all line up really nicely in my life. And God says, you know what? Those things aren't even part of the equation. The only thing that matters is the steadfast covenant love of God Himself. And when you hang on to that, regardless of how disorienting your circumstances are, there is hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are God who keeps His promises, who maintains His covenant, who does not fail even though we're uncomfortable with the way that things go in our lives. Father, would You grant us eyes to see, a heart to believe when we just don't think we can hold on any longer. 
Father, I, I know that for some this has happened. These kinds of events have come into their lives and they just can't, they just can't understand it. And they just can't make it through. And Father, I know that for others, these things will come. God, would You remind us that You alone are a God of covenant love. We do make our boast in You. We do place our confidence and our hope in You. So God, would You be the anchor for our souls. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.